This presentation is from Design Research 2020, Day 1. Benjamin, there we are. Hello. Hello. Thank you, and I'll hand over to you. Thanks for joining us. Sweet ass. Cool. Um, hi, everybody. I'm just going to set myself up here. So basically, yeah, my name is Benjamin. I am the co-founder and CEO of Dovetail. We are a Sydney-based company of about uh, 12 people at the moment. And we build software for user researchers. I think uh, a few of our customers are probably in the audience as well, which is cool. So, hey, how are you guys going? <laughs> um, I don't have Twitter myself, but we have a company Twitter at High Dovetail, if you'd like to uh, tweet about anything. Um, my background is actually product design, not research, but I've been in the research space for about three years now. And I used to work at Atlassian uh, to sort of continue the, the trend of Atlassian kind of dominating this conference so far, but whatever. Um, so basically today talking to you about research repositories and sorry, I've just got a little bit of chat here. So I just want to check. Yeah, cool. We're, we're all good. Uh, so basically talking to you about, sorry, moving stuff around what a research repository is, uh, what problems they're trying to solve. I'll share some principles to guide your decision-making if you feel like you need to set up one for your organization. And I'll also touch on a few other things at the end because it's only a 10 minute talk. I'm not going to be able to cover everything. So firstly, uh, what is a research repository? Uh, well, it all started in sort of 2017 with this article that I'm sure many of you have read called Democratizing UX. It was published by Thomas Sharon, who is the, oh, sorry, was the head of design at WeWork. And he also did a, uh, like a webinar or a podcast called WeWork's Polaris, a system for designing what to work on. So he kind of popularized these terms, atomic research and nuggets. And he defined a nugget as this combination of an observation, evidence and tags. Um, it was a very popular article. A couple of years later, Matt from Microsoft published this article called how Microsoft's human insights library creates a living body of knowledge. And that was in June, 2019. The system, the internal tool that Microsoft built is called HITS. And uh, in the article, Matt talks about how HITS is designed to encourage participation in research, specifically with non-researchers, uh, and also enables real-time curation of insights. By that, he means that the insight should be kind of happening organically throughout the project rather than this sort of uh, big cliff to, to climb up at the end of the project. June, July, and August 2019 was a very hot time for research repositories. Everybody seemed to be publishing an article on one. So Sarah from GitLab wrote why we built a UX research insights repository uh, in July 2019. And she shared how they built one on top of GitLab issues. This is actually public, like the repository itself is public. So you can go check that one out on Google. And then most recently, Etienne from Uber uh, wrote an article called The Power of Insights, a behind the scenes look at the new insights platform at Uber in August last year. It's called Kaleidoscope. There was the Medium article and also a, a webinar recently with Rosenfeld. And uh, in the webinar, she shared that it was built in people's spare time over a few months. So these are all kind of internal tools that um, these organizations have invested in. So reading these articles and listening to the webinars and also talking to our customers, we have kind of decided on this definition of, of what a research repository means. Um, so we think it's a centralized searchable database of research and insights that the entire organization leverages to make better decisions. Another way to think about it is kind of this collective brain for your organization's customer knowledge. And the whole point is to allow everybody to 
uncover user research insights and explore the evidence and the context that led to them. So why is everybody setting up this research repository? What are the problems they're actually trying to solve? Uh, you know, talking to our customers and sort of reading through these articles, I've done the, the work and, and set, uh, summarized some of the problems to share with you guys today. So the first one is that research is conducted differently across teams and departments, especially in large organizations, and different methodologies, tools, and formats for insights can cause silos. So here's a quote from a customer interview uh, we did last week. We want to bring research through the entire business to all of the fragmented areas so that we can cross-pollinate our research. So really about trying to break down those silos between teams. Uh, new team members join and they ask the same questions over and over and similar projects are run uh, repeatedly. So Sharif, a product manager at Atlassian told us that one of the key challenges we've seen is how to help new team members build a shared understanding of the key insights that existing team members have already realized. The cost of relearning is expensive, especially in growing organizations. Uh, undocumented knowledge means that you have to know who to talk to. And when somebody leaves an organization, they take that knowledge with them. We call that tribal knowledge and relying on it, especially in a, in a large or growing organization uh, can be dangerous. So another quote from a customer of ours, we want to stop relying on one person who's been there for seven years to tell us what happened previously. And I'm sure that in your organizations, there are people who kind of know it all and uh, they're, they're often pestered for coffee chats and catch ups and things to build context. Because every researcher works differently and it's sort of a you know, gestation period, I guess, for the, for the discipline at the moment too, research reports aren't standardized. And so we've seen PowerPoints, blog posts, Word documents, confluence pages. And so without a consistent format, it's, it can be difficult to leverage those insights uh, from the past. Uh, so this is kind of what Toma was talking about when he, he mentioned atomic research nuggets. Having some sort of consistency for the format makes it a lot easier to sort of store and search and leverage that past research. And lastly, research data is spread across a variety of tools. So you've probably all been familiar with, you know, Google Drive, Dropbox, Confluence, Miro, Qualtrics, Airtable, Word documents, and sticky notes, of course. Um, so sticky notes are great, but you can't search them. When you pull the wall down, they're gone. Uh, you have a local max for people in a room and now uh, they're not so good for remote work. So another customer, we had developed a treasure trove of research over the years, and we felt somewhat limited by more traditional file sharing platforms, which essentially allowed us to put the research in one place, but not to explore and digest the information in an intuitive user-friendly way. So these are kind of you know, five problems that um, we've observed that people are trying to you know, implement a research repository to solve. And uh, we found this quote from Jacob Nielsen back in 2005 in this article that he wrote. So when people have to search for usability reports, they'll often fail or they won't even know what to look for because there's no single place that lists all available usability results. Even worse, if past project owners are the only source of results, you risk losing valuable institutional memory when these individuals leave the company or get reassigned. So Jacob's talking specifically about usability testing reports, uh, but he kind of preempted this whole wave or this whole trend back uh, 15 years ago, talking about the lack of a single place and this uh, institutional memory when people leave the company or, or move projects. 
So let's say that you're, you know, sold that you want to set up a repository or you feel like your organization's big enough, it could benefit from it. Here are a few principles to keep in mind to guide your decision making. So we all know that researchers are busy and outnumbered and the whole purpose of a repository is to help scale a research team to service the whole organization. This means that the repository has to support the ability to retrieve answers to questions in a self-service way. And as a tangible example of that, something like search should be effortless. There should be no complicated queries, filters or views. We also know that some stakeholders don't feel comfortable interacting with research, or maybe they're intimidated, especially if there's clunky or unintuitive software that requires training. So the repository should encourage everyone to make data-backed decisions. And the best way to do this is to have a great experience that encourages usage across roles and seniority levels. If uh, one of our customers actually shared Dovetail with uh, their board of a company, it's like a big public company, and had them kind of playing around with it, and the head of research for that company uh, talked to me, this was last year, and said that it was a huge one because they sort of felt really connected to the, the end users. Evidence helps to build trust in the research team. I'm sure you're all familiar with bringing in a stakeholder, for example, a developer, into a usability testing session or an interview and seeing their kind of firsthand reaction to observing a user um, firsthand. And so traceability between the insight and where it came from is very important. It also helps to keep biases in check by providing that extra context uh, for people to explore the data on their own. We know that researchers want to build participation in order to create empathy with end users. That's a very common uh, thing that researchers like doing. Of course, it's counterproductive if you have the research data locked away somewhere. So the idea of a repository is to create this level playing field uh, regarding access to data. And again, tangible examples are features like open by default permissions and one-click sign-on for easy authentication. Lastly, in the age of GDPR and the California Privacy Act, uh, your repository will probably be storing a lot of personal information sensitive data. So it's important to consider things like storage policies, data retention and deletion policies, features like encryption and anonymization, and of course, the, the regulatory requirements there. I haven't been able to cover everything. There's a whole heap more involved in setting up a repository that's successful. However, there's a few other things you think about um, which might prompt you to ask questions. So how will you get buy-in from the org? The repository probably won't be so successful if there's only one or two people using it. Who's gonna have access? If you're gonna invite everybody, are you also gonna allow them all to create data and insights or will they just be viewers? How will you migrate past research data? Is this something that you try to import all of your existing insights and move from there? Or do you sort of pick a time uh, in space and say this is, you know, from here on out, we'll be using the repository? What kind of data will you store? So for instance, you know, interview transcripts, video recordings, usability testing notes, maybe survey responses, MPS, that sort of stuff. Uh, and who will manage the taxonomy? So who will garden it, make sure that it doesn't turn into the wild west, keep it consistent, standardized, and kind of, yeah, be that kind of guardian. So that's it from me. Uh, if you'd like to learn more, check out our article at, at dvtl.link slash repos, which kind of goes into more detail uh, than this talk. We're hiring as well. Um, I really encourage you to read those articles from WeWork, Microsoft, GitLab, and Uber, because there's some really good insights there. 
And uh, lastly, you can email me and of course reach out to us on Twitter. So that's it for me. Thanks, Benjamin. Um, we have a, a question from uh, Benson asking whether or not you've seen um, the adoption of repositories grow in the last 12 months. There's certainly been a lot of talk about them. Are you seeing their, their adoption? Yeah, no, 100%. I think um, we are kind of inundated with people talking about the ways to uh, set up their repository. They're looking for tools to help them out. Most organizations can't afford to do what the big guys have done and build their own internal tool. Hmm. Uh, in all of those scenarios, they were kind of like 20% projects or part-time projects that the researchers who initiated them kind of got developers to help out with. There's also templates on Airtable, sort of ways you can put stuff together. I think the market is kind of understanding that, you know, flexible file storage products like Google Drive, Dropbox, and uh, relational database tools like Airtable, they work to a degree, but there's sort of like a point where you need something purpose-built. So I think that, you know, these articles, all these kind of organizations trying to solve these problems make a lot of sense. I, I honestly think it's just a, a reaction to the rise of research in general inside companies. And uh, as a designer, very similar um, to what happened to design a few years back, uh, where designers kind of got that seat at the table. So. Uh, we have a question from Lena asking, when beginning to set up a repository um, and using a tool like Dovetail, do you have a suggestion whether you should bring in the past information, like research that you already have, or does it make more sense to start from scratch, um, doing the former and bringing everything, um, your, your historical data in, can feel overwhelming. Yeah. What's your what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, because there's so many different methodologies and formats of data, you've got, you know, video, text, transcripts, notes, survey responses, both structured and unstructured. Um, importing it and sort of, you know, transforming it into a, a sort of format that makes sense for whatever tool you're deciding to use is pretty difficult. Like it's a lot of work. And so we, we see a lot of customers just kind of draw a line in the sand and say, let's start from here. Or maybe they do like a gradual rollout where they go like, okay, we'll use this for interviews, but not usability testing, or we'll use this for survey responses or something like this. So um, I don't like importing data because it's all like qualitative unstructured data and you end up realizing how much you have, especially if you go back years, it's just kind of, it's, I don't know if it's worth it really, but um, that's kind of up to each organization to decide like how valuable that stuff is. Yeah. Um, Amy has a question that may not have um, a, an easy answer, but it's how do you deal with the GDPR constraints? Yeah, um, with difficulty. Uh, so, I mean, obviously picking vendors who have that top of mind, like we work really hard to ensure that our product is, is kind of compliant with this sort of regulation. I think um, that's pretty much all you can do. Like this, I think the thing with GDPR compliance is that it's not really, it's not a binary, you're compliant or you're not. It's like a set of guidelines and it's a risk mitigation thing too. So I think uh, ensuring you do the best sort of due diligence around that, getting the legal security teams involved. There's standardized checklists and security assessments and things like that. We fill them out all the time. We've published them all on our site that uh, if you follow that stuff, you'll be right. 
Okay. We've got um, a couple more questions in the Q&A panel that we don't have time for, but Benjamin, if you've got time, maybe you can go in and, and type an answer in there. But uh, thank you yeah, very much for that. That's, that's been excellent. Um, and we, we, we appreciate you giving us the time. Thank you. No worries.